Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 2. We'll be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 29. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in your word, we find light, and it's only in your light that we have any understanding. And so we come today weak and dependent, once again asking that you speak, Lord, for we are here to listen. Lead and guide us into your truth. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In her short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, Flannery O'Connor introduces us to a young college graduate. He's an aspiring writer. He's named Julian. Julian's mother had been ordered by the doctor to lose 20 pounds to deal with her high blood pressure. This required her to attend reducing classes at the local YMCA each Wednesday night. Without a car, Julian's mother was unable to get there unless she ride the bus. And in 1960s Atlanta, where the story is set, the buses had been integrated. And so Julian's mother, an aspiring upper-class woman, refused to ride alone. As she prepared to leave one evening with Julian, she obsessed about whether she had paid too much for a new hat that she had purchased for seven and a half dollars. Julian hated the hat. He thought it looked ridiculous. It was purple and green, and he says that it looked like a cushion on her head. But he didn't say anything. He simply wanted to get his mother out the door to the class at the Y. She considered returning it. She discussed it with him at length, but she finally determined that such a fine hat was worth keeping. She put it on, and one last time listened to what she says. Well, you only live once, and paying a little more for it, I at least won't meet myself coming and going. They walked to the bus station, and she went on about her purchase of the hat, noting how the hat did something for her, and then that she did something for that particular hat, too. On the walk, Julian's mother managed to visit normal paths in which she traveled in conversations, and so the conversation turned to race. She was a hardcore, old-school segregationist at her core. She even says that she believes African Americans were better off as slaves. Julian loathed this conversation with his mother. He'd had it time and time again. He knew every dead end that she would travel down. Everything that she could say was anticipated. He tried to ignore her, growing increasingly angry. Once on the bus, finally, on the way to the YMCA, his mother commented publicly about how relieved she was that there were only whites on the bus. Others nodded their head. Julian seethed in anger. A few stops later, an African-American woman, along with her son, boarded the bus. She was dressed well. She had on red shoes, a green crepe dress, and a hat, a familiar hat, purple and green, looking like a cushion. And this is what O'Connor writes. The vision of the two hats, identical, broke upon him with the radiance of a brilliant sunrise. His face was suddenly lit with joy. He could not believe that fate had thrust upon his mother such a lesson. He looked at his mother, and her once blue eyes, O'Connor says, seemed to be a bruised purple. Here they are, two women on a bus. 
one white, one black. Both are accompanied by their sons. Both are dressed up to go somewhere, and both have on the same hat. What Julian's mother thought was an object of distinction and considerable pride became a source of her humiliation, of her humbling, because one of the women believed that she was superior to another. However, Connor's genius in telling the story is that nothing differentiated them from one another. They were exactly the same in their humanity. And in Romans 2, we have the Apostle Paul underscoring a similar point. And he's doing so to his Jewish contemporaries. At the close of chapter 1, there's no doubt that any Jewish reader would have been nodding their head as Paul listed out the condemnation of the Gentiles for all the things that they had been handed over to because of their rejection of God. A Jewish reader would have agreed with that assessment and found some smug pride in it. But it's here then in chapter 2 that Paul takes the turn. It's that moment where the vista opens up and the mirror is shown because he turns to address his Jewish compatriots, his peers, his fellows, and he addresses them in their own superiority, in their arrogance and in their boasting. Because what they were missing is that they were under the same indictment as the Gentile nations. They were equal with the very people that they despised and that they believed that they were superior to. And in this critique, we do journey through a long and tangled and very difficult chapter. Many people avoid a series in Romans just simply not to have to deal with chapter 2, and I understand them after this week. But in reading it, we also encounter three critical parts of the gospel. Three things that we'll look at this morning concerning our boasting before God, the final evaluation by God, and our approval before God. And so we'll look at each of those three. And first in this chapter, what we find is that there is no room for human boasting. In verses 1 through 5, Paul launches into his critique of his Jewish contemporaries. They positioned themselves as judges of the Gentiles, but yet they were guilty of the very same things. If you look at the second half of verse 1, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then in verse 3, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He then continues the same type of argument down in verses 17 through 24. He speaks again to those who rely on the law and who boast in God. They have knowledge of God's will. They approve of that will. They believe that God has revealed the truth. They see themselves as instructors of others, but yet once again we learn that they have desecrated the law 
by breaking the law. There was something profoundly hypocritical within them. They had some knowledge and they had some external conformity to the law, but at their heart, they were hypocrites. And this leads us to Paul's point, because for many Jews in the first century, they boasted in two things. First, there was a boasting in the possession of the Mosaic law. It was considered to be what set them apart. It contained the promises and the precepts of God. It distinguished them from all the other nations of the earth. And so the Jewish nation, we know from their own writings at the time, that they believed God would deal with them differently. Certainly they had their sins, but they were superior. They possessed the revelation of God, and so they looked down on the nations with a certain haughtiness. And Paul says that they had impenitent and hard hearts. The second thing that they boasted in is they also boasted in their performance of the Mosaic law. They considered themselves the righteous ones. Sure, they had some sins, but they were the ones devoted to God. They were really the ones who were dedicated to serving him. And Paul's point is fairly simple, that there is no impartiality with God. And therefore, there is no room for human boasting. That Jew and Gentile alike share in one common indictment. That there is one common indictment that passes on all of us. Every human being that's walked the face of the earth, we find that indictment that we are sinful and unrighteous before God. That there's no room for human boasting. We saw this drawn out for us in chapter 1, in which Paul is particularly focusing on the Gentiles, but we saw that he does so in a clever way, because there he explains that God created the world, that he spoke it into existence. And when he brings it into existence, he fashions and forms it to a certain purpose and to a certain end. And that is that the works of God's hands were to reveal God's invisible attributes and his eternal nature to his creatures, those made in his image, human beings. But we saw that Paul's indictment, the fault of human beings, is that we suppress that truth. All that revelation that's surrounding us, constantly bombarding us, that we suppress that, we hold it back, and we fail to honor God, and we fail to give thanks to God. And that this is the primal sin the things that God gave us, all of creation, that were to point us to him, rather than using those things to point us to God, we begin to worship and serve those created things. There's an exchange that takes place. This is our rebellion. This is the problem of human beings. And so, friends... This applies to both Jew and to Gentile because we saw in Psalm 105 and also in Jeremiah 2 that there's clever passages that Paul is echoing there where this exchange has taken place. And though the Jew would look at the Gentile and accuse them and love to judge them, that they have no room and no basis to do so. And so despite all their privilege, despite all their knowledge, despite all their accomplishments, the Jewish nation was under the same indictment. 
they too had participated in this primal sin. And the value for us today is that everyone is included. No one in this room and no one outside of this room No one in Europe and no one in the United States, no one in Africa and no one in South America, that all are included, that all are in the dock and all are indicted before God. None is righteous, no, not one. And friends, this is the work of the gospel today among us. As we hear the righteousness of God proclaimed in this moment, that human boasting is reduced to nothing that there is no room for boasting in our midst. None of us can put a claim on God. We can't control him with what we have done or what we possess. Boasting is thrown out. But the second thing that we see is that there is one basis of evaluation. In verse 6, if you follow there, Paul writes, he will render to each one according to his works. This is quoting directly from Psalm 62 in verse 12, that God will render to each one according to what they have done, their works. Now, some of you may be thinking, what? What did the Apostle Paul just say? One chapter ago, he said that we're counted righteous by faith, And now he's saying that God judges us according to our works. I thought the whole point of the gospel and what you just said about human boasting is that works don't matter, that we're righteous by faith. What in the world? And it is one of the perplexing features here of Romans chapter 2. And yes, Paul does say that you are righteous by faith apart from works. He says that emphatically, and it's not simply in other books of the New Testament. He says it in the book of Romans. And so we have to do the hard work of understanding what he meant here. Because what he means in saying that there's a judgment according to works doesn't contradict salvation by grace. Hold on to that. And so he takes us into this in verses 7 and 8. And he's going to juxtapose two different groups of people, if you follow with me there. He speaks of those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. To these, God will give eternal life. And then he speaks of those who are self-seeking, or that word self-seeking could be translated contentious, and I do think that's better to the original. And do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. For them, there will be wrath and fury. And so one group receives eternal life, one group receives judgment and condemnation. But they're distinguished by two things. One is seeking after God's glory and honor, and one is contentious with God's truth. And so what's critical for us to note here is that this contentiousness with the truth This is pointing us back to the primal sin of Romans 1. That the suppression of God's truth and our rebellion in which we pursued our own independent path. It's where we said that we wanted our own wisdom and we wanted to be autonomous and independent of God. This is what brings the wrath of God. 
And so we didn't want God's wisdom. We struck out on our own. And so Paul says that this other group that receives eternal life, that they are patient in well-doing. And so what exactly does he mean? And what Paul is pointing to here very clearly is he's speaking about those works that are evidence of a lively and true and living faith. You'll note if you read it carefully that he's not saying that you're justified by seeking after those things. But rather he's simply describing the one who has faith. That the one who has faith in Jesus is one who seeks after glory and honor and immortality. It is evidence and expression of faith of which he discusses. And so those who are righteous by faith, who've been granted a gift that they're never deserving of, will evidence that faith in seeking after glory and honor and immortality. This will become abundantly clear as the chapters unfold. In verses 12 through 16, Paul amplifies this point by contrasting two other groups. And this will deepen the problem somewhat. He speaks of the hearers of the law and the doers of the law. In this contrast, he's specifically addressing the Jewish community, the hearers of the law, with another group that were the doers of the law who have the law written on their hearts. Scholars are all over the map about what this means, but I think it's abundantly clear who he's referring to. Because this language of the law being written upon the heart is Old Testament language. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, where the promise of the new covenant is given. And the promise that once the Messiah comes, guess what would be written upon the heart by the Spirit of God? The law. And so Paul is here juxtaposing two groups, those who are the hearers of the law, and then a group of Gentiles who he's been preaching to, who are doing the law, even though originally they did not possess the law. They didn't know it, but the law was written on their hearts by the Spirit of God. And Paul is in seeing them obey the law instinctively by the Spirit of God. This is what he sees unfolding. And so these Gentiles are now doers of the law, even though they did not have the law. And this doing of the law, once again, is evidence of God's justifying faith. If you'll follow with me in Romans 8, this is where Paul brings some of this argument to a climax for us and puts this in order. If you follow in verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the point that Jesus Christ comes and identifies with us in the flesh. He dies in our place, condemning sin in the flesh. We're righteous and counted right with God, but then the law of God is written in our heart, and we're freed not to walk in it perfectly, but yet to walk in it. And this is the phenomena that Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 2, that the law is written on the heart, that what we have here then 
is Paul laying out for us that the basis of our judgment is works. Have we walked in the way of the law? And that those works are evidence of a true and a lively and a sincere faith. Because friends, we're saved by faith alone in Jesus. This is argued so clearly in the book of Romans. It can't be, rep- it can't be refuted. But yet that faith, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. That created anew by the Spirit of God, we begin to walk in the way of good works. And so this is a truth of the gospel, that God is so gracious to us that he not only forgives our sins, all manner of sins, the catalog is extensive in Romans 1 as to what we've been handed over to, all of us. Not only has he forgiven those sins, but God then frees us from the reign of those sins, from their dominion, from the grip and hold over us. And he is doing so progressively that we become doers of the law with the law written upon the heart. This is his gift to us. And finally, what we find here in Romans chapter 2 is we see that there is also one essential for approval before God. If you look in verses 25 and 29, we find once again an argument between two groups, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The Jewish nation found particular pride in their circumcision. It set them apart. It was a mark of the promise of God that he would multiply Abraham's descendants, as many as the sands upon the seashore and the stars in the sky. It is the defining boundary marker for Israelites in the first century. In verse 25, Paul explains that circumcision becomes uncircumcision if you break the law. And so he's asking his Jewish peers, he's asking them the question, what good is it if you walk outside the law. And so outward conformity to the religious code was insufficient. And he goes on to explain in verse 29 the critical truth. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but his praise is from God. And so what Paul is saying to his Jewish friends, and by extension what he's saying to us today, that the one essential for approval before God is the circumcision of the heart. This is what makes our true membership in God's family. This is what defines it. This is conversion by the grace of God in his gift to us. This gift grants us faith, faith in Jesus that justifies the righteous are righteous by faith, and it is a gift that gives us a new and a clean heart, as we'll visit extensively in Romans 6, in chapter 7, and in chapter 8. And so this is the question being pressed upon us this morning. As we hear these words, as we encounter the righteousness of God in his word, Are you truly converted? Are you circumcised in heart? And friends, for the church today, this can be a fearful word. 
because we can somewhat be like this Jewish audience that he's speaking to. They had the knowledge of God's will. They held the scriptures. They saw themselves as teachers of others. But yet, what is the verdict that's rendered? In all their boasting and in all of their pride, they were empty. And they had nothing. They were boasting in the wrong things. See, to be a Christian is not something that we inherit. Yes, we can inherit the promises. We welcomed an infant into our congregation today, an heir of the promises. But yet those promises must be received. They must be conferred by the Spirit. They must be received in faith. That the heart must be circumcised. That you and I, that we have to be converted. That there is no such thing as nominal faith. This conversion is then evidenced in works, good works that are worked out by God's Spirit. And so have you, individually and personally, have you been circumcised in heart? That's the question that each of us has to ask ourselves. The question is not how long have you been in church How many years have you sat in the pew? The question is not how familiar are you with the Bible or how many times have you read it? How many verses have you memorized? The question is not do you know the Westminster Confession of Faith as wonderful as it is? Or were you made to memorize the catechism? No, the question at the end of the day of all the knowledge and all the learning of all of Scripture is are you circumcised in heart? Has God given you that gift? Has God circumcised your heart and drawn you to faith in Jesus in which you look to him in the pile of your sins and all of your unrighteousness and all of your personal failures and all your lack of accomplishments and all the wrongs that you've done in all of that, that you can bear the guilt of that because Jesus bore it for you? Are you looking to him in that way from that desperation? And then do you recognize that he's made you new and he's calling you away from those old masters to now delight in his law, in his way, in his goodness? One of the favorite stories of conversion of that nature belongs to my own family. My mother was raised a Presbyterian She was arduously catechized. She was taught scripture and was no more converted than that wall. She would tell you the same. When I was born, she was still in that state, taught me the same things. Earliest memories, learning the 23rd Psalm, growing up in church, sitting in pews, rolling my cars around on the floor of Starmount Presbyterian Church. It was a sloped floor. But we moved to my hometown of Greenville, North Carolina. My mom took us to the pool one day as our earliest days there. And she was carrying a book, Rabbi Krishna's book, Why Do Good Things, Bad Things Happen to Good People? And so another lady saw her and said, oh, you must be interested in God. Would you like to come to a Bible study? My mom said, yes, I'll come to a Bible study. I love to study the Bible. So she went to the Bible study 
She would later learn that her friend had just been converted, and the Bible study was actually training for evangelism explosion. (laughs) Friend didn't know any better. (laughs) So here's mom training to be an evangelist, and she's no more converted than the wall. And they had an exercise in in the training. It invited you to confess sins for 20 minutes. The way mom tells it, she read that and said, well, I haven't really done anything wrong, but here's a go. She started confessing sins, and then all of a sudden the weight of what it meant not to be righteous descended. The weight of sin, of all of her failures, of all of her lack of accomplishments, of the ways that she had offended against God, it became clear. And suddenly the gospel wasn't a message about how to clean up your life or to do good or to be better. But it was a message for desperate sinners. What was happening? Circumcision of the heart. Despite having lived in the church and been all around it, despite knowing its fundamental beliefs, she didn't know them. And many of you have the same story. Because we have to be transformed and converted by God. It's a gift from him. And so friends, there's no room for us to make the mistake of Julian's mother. To live with such pride and superiority where we look down upon others and we think ourselves better. As those in the church, we don't do that. We don't judge others in their sins while holding on to an empty boast. Because what we recognize is the fundamental truth that Jew and Gentile and any other distinction that we can create by sociological parameters is thrown out. That there's a common indictment that puts you on the hook and puts me on the hook, that puts the whole world on the hook, that we have sought independence from God And in that independence, God is now proclaiming his righteousness. That we can undo that problem, that fix that we've gotten ourselves into. And that we can look to the grace of God. That grace revealed in Jesus that is rich and free, that's powerful and present. And that grace brings forgiveness. That grace circumcises the heart That grace heals, that grace renews, that grace restores, and that grace promises resurrection. Friends, ask yourself today, am I circumcised in heart? Take the time to do so. It is the most important question you can ask. And Paul takes the risk to ask it to ask it of his peers. And God takes the risk to ask you today. Let's pray. Father, in a long and tangled and difficult chapter, we confess that you alone are our teacher. And so guide us into truth. And we ask that you would examine us, that you would search us, that we would know ourselves. May we not be self-deceived, 
May we not be boastful, but may we know what it is to look in dependence and weakness and humility to Jesus. And in him, may we find forgiveness. And in him, may we find a new heart. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.